The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 10, Indian Literature, A Cosmic Feast. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code LITERATURE50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. It's a continent. I can still hear him now. I can see him in my mind's eye. This man with the round glasses and the hair caked with dust. I'm young. He's young, a little older than me. A little more battered by life. Smile lines are tugging at the corners of his eyes. The two of us are both in Nepal, although we're headed in opposite directions. I was headed south, away from Tibet a region that at that time it was not safe to travel in. He was gearing up for the journey. A publisher in London was paying him to go, report back on how things were in the restricted areas. He had drained me for information as we sat there in the cafe of the guest house. I wanted to know how to get to places that I had just been to, places in Tibet that the authorities did not permit Westerners to visit. And as an afterthought, he gave me some advice about India, where I'd be headed next. 
And that was all his advice. That was the entirety of it. It's a continent. India? Oh, you're headed to India? It's a continent. I knew what he meant eventually. It's the size of Europe. Easy to forget that. 800 million people, of course. It can be hard to get around, hard to visit quickly, hard to take in. Overwhelming. Came to, to understand that after I had been there. This memory occurred to me as we made our transition as part of this podcast. We're moving from China to India, just as I had. I didn't come from the Northwest like most migrants and invaders of India came. The geography of India enables that, permits that. Remember, India has two sides bordered by the Indian Ocean, the bottom two sides of its triangle. To the east is jungle. To the northeast, the highest mountain range in the world. That's where I was coming now. I was descending from there, spiraling down out of the dreams of Tibet into the reality of India, the shock. And in some ways, that's what we've been doing on this podcast. We came from China, from the refinement of Confucius, the control into the glorious chaos. This time we're doing it from my armchair, my microphone. Nevertheless, something about it filled me with a bit of anxiety, that nervous energy, the overwhelming aspects of it were creeping in on me. You haven't been there, but you've been to Manhattan. That's what India feels like in some ways. The whole continent is like that. You open the door, you walk out, and you step into this flow of energy. Life swirling around you, the colors, the smells, the sounds. Manhattan never sleeps. That's what India feels like. It can be sleepy in places. There are places for repose, for moments of repose. But in the cities, in the vast multitudes of India, your senses are bombarded. Your adrenaline is coursing through you. The feeling of being alive envelops you. I thought I could handle Indian literature in an episode, a quick catching up. I even started the script. We'll just run through epic Indian literature. I think I promised that last time. I realized it was not a good idea. Not because you can't do it. I could. It would feel a little rushed, a little hasty. More than that, I didn't want to. I started the research, the reading, the great joy of India came flooding back. All the awakening, how deeply rooted it is in our humanity and how deeply spiritual it is. How wonderful it is to engage with India, with Indian culture, with Indian literature. It's not a culture to visit quickly. It's not like an, an ornament. It's not one of those countries you get your passport stamped, you take a picture with a few key Monuments, one or two famous buildings, it's not like that at all. It's a journey, it's a quest. It's foundational to 
who we are as humans, who we understand ourselves to be. The earliest humans came out of Africa, what science tells us. These people, where did they go? They walked around the shores of the Arabian Sea and they made their way to southern India, where the land was extremely fertile. I heard you can throw a mango on the ground and a tree sprouts up. And there, these hunter-gatherers thrived and prospered. And this was thousands of years ago, of course. From there, they traveled north again, spreading out their culture, spreading out what they had learned, what it meant to be human at that time. They mixed with the rest of the world, sprinkling it with what they had brought from their their cradle in southern India. And some stayed. They handed down their DNA. There are villages in India that have some of the oldest sources of DNA we have. Our common ancestors, our common roots, they're found today in India. They also handed down hymns or chants were preserved orally for thousands of years. I saw an astonishing moment on a PBS documentary. It showed footage of Brahmins teaching the mantras to younger generations. According to the host, scientists and linguists studied these mantras. They were astonished to find that many of them had no words. There were rules and patterns, but no meaning in the sense that we understand it today. They were evolved from a period, they could be dated back to a period prior to human speech. The closest analogy that they could find was to birdsong. Really incredible to think about that. Still being taught today. Handed down untouched. Carefully. Mirrored. So that today it represents what it represented Thousands of years ago, it represents our oldest selves, our remotest human origins, going back as far as we can. And here it is, still alive today, in a little town in southern India. It's one of the many wonderful things about India. India doesn't just have a past. In a sense, it has every past. All alive. Looking at India, one can find modern society as well. It's the world's biggest democracy. It's teeming with life, buzzing with modernity. But one can also find some of our deepest, oldest human endeavors mixed together. Our spiritual longings, our curiosity, our searching, our quest, our eternal hunger for poetry and song and our capacity for storytelling and myth. We see the heroic age, the epic, the Ramayana, story of creation myths, heroes, and gods. We'll dig into that in a future episode as part of our story. And we'll look at another epic, the Mahabharata, a story of warring families. An incredible text was composed over the course of 800 years. Longest poem in the world, many believe, along the way. Things were added to everything that was reflecting Indian society, what was 
a concern in Indian society during those 800 years was added to the poem as it was refined and increased so that the poem itself now gives us a window into the remotest ancient past as well as a more recent past. Both of these poems are still prominent today. We'll take some time and look at those. India accumulates. This isn't the only example, of course. Everything seems to get added to India. Nothing seems to be erased. Full of layers. The Hindu religion has gods upon gods upon gods. The multiplicity is as valued as anything uniform. What it feels like to be in India. And we'll look at the culminating passage in the Hamap, sorry, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, where the epic turns into a philosophical inquiry. And underneath all those texts, running through like a flowing river, one that flows from our ancient past to us today, are the Vedas. Hymns, oral hymns, carefully passed along for thousands of years as they were refined and evolved, recording a spiritual journey of an entire people. We'll look at the Upanishads, the most famous of the Vedas, where the religious seeking reaches its apex in a literary work on a par with Plato's dialogues and the greatest passages in the Bible. The Vedas were written in Sanskrit, a language sharing features of Indo-European languages like Latin and Greek and many others. The origins are ancient. The roots are common and shared. The Vedas are several thousand years old, far older than the Bible. And listen to this richness of thought. Here's a passage from the Vedas I love. It's such a wonderful comparison of the story of Genesis. I talked about my own struggles with faith in an earlier episode. As a young person, I ran into so many questions that go unanswered. In the church I grew up in, God created the universe, but who created God? What was there before? In the Abrahamic religious tradition of my childhood, The answer was, we don't know. We can't know. It's a mystery. But we will not know the ways of God, the omniscient being. Who are we to ask? That's the implication. We lowly sinners. Who are we even to question? That's for God to know and not us. The Vedas have multiple origin stories. Here's one of the ones I like the best. It's from the Rig Veda. I'm not sure of the pronunciation of the title. I think it's Nasadya. It's translated. I've seen it in a couple of places in different ways. The hymn of creation and the hymn of non-existence. It starts out, Then even nothingness was not, nor existence. There was no air then, nor heavens beyond it goes on to offer some thoughts about creation, how something can be born out of nothing, whether that's possible. Then it says, but after all, who knows? 
and who can say from where it all came and how creation happened. Creation is older than the gods themselves, so who knows truly how it all began? Only the one who watches from highest heaven. Whether he fashioned it himself or whether he didn't, only he knows how the universe began. Or maybe even he does not know. That is spectacular. So rich. I said early on in this podcast, maybe in the very first episode, I liked it best when literature makes me think. This passage calls forth all my powers. We'll also have an interesting comparison of a pair of gods incarnate, Jesus and Krishna, to look at. What will the comparison teach us about how we think? What new ideas will it give us to look at and think deeply about? Our nature and our beliefs. All that will come to play in a future episode as we run through the the world of ancient Indian literature. I have a book on my shelf called Classic Indian Cooking by Julie Sani. Might be my favorite book in the world. So inspiring. It's a wonderful book. Recommend it to everyone. Wanted to read a few passages from the introduction to you. As I was going through Indian literature, as I fell into it, my immersion, I was reminded of some of these passages. This book is just a straight cookbook. Just that. Oh, that's not as simple as it sounds. Here's how it begins. Indian cooking is more of an art than a science. It is highly personalized, reflecting individual tastes. It allows the cook to exercise the full range of her or his creative ingenuity. This is because the foundation of Indian cooking rests not so much on special techniques or expensive ingredients as on the flavorings, specifically spices and herbs. Their uses in different permutations and combinations are what give Indian cooking its distinct character. Just as no two pieces of creative work are alike, so the same dish prepared by different cooks exhibits as many individualized flavors as it has interpreters. And it goes on to say, Knowledge of how to use spices and herbs is the key that will unlock the secrets of the seductive flavors and tantalizing aromas in Indian cooking. Knowing the quantities required is only the first step. As you start preparing Indian dishes, you will begin to develop a sense of how the spices and herbs behave with the other ingredients in a dish. Now, it was hard for me not to see the parallels here between Indian cooking and Indian life, Indian culture, Indian philosophy, and of course, most importantly for us, Indian literature and the entire feast of literature that we've been looking at as part of our History of Literature podcast. She points out that the role of spices and herbs goes far beyond pleasing the palate and soothing the senses. They have medicinal properties that were known to the ancient Indians. She refers to holy Hindu scriptures which document the effect of spices on body temperature. All of this, each one, 
Each spice adds its own importance in the way it mingles with each other. It's never the same. It's always a little different. Really inspiring. I don't know if you feel that. I certainly do. Listen to this passage. When spices and herbs are added to a dish, they act on the ingredients in many specific and wondrous ways. Can't we say the same thing about books and poems? Don't they act on individuals in specific and wondrous ways? Don't they become part of the mix of our own development, our own curiosity being satisfied, our own inspiration, our creativity being generated by what we read? When I was in Nepal waiting to descend into India, sitting there like a a dumpling about to be dropped into a simmering pan. People would ask me how long I planned to stay. I didn't know. A month? Three months? What would be enough? What would be too long? I had no idea. And they would tell me that they had stayed a year or that they had planned to stay a year and ended up staying for ten. It swallows you up. They would say, it's not going to be enough. You'll want more. I thought if I thought six months would be enough, I was barely getting started. The longer I stayed, the more I realized I was scratching the surface. This was the kind of thing that I would hear. I did feel that way when I was there. And I feel this way when I'm thinking about literature. The Mahabharata alone is the largest epic poem in the world that in and of itself could swallow us up. And yet, more leads to more. Each spice interacts with with another. Each city, each region, each text, each story, each religious custom, it all leads to more. It all deepens and makes more savory. The combination is eternal and subtle and complex and ever-changing and timeless and wondrous. That's the key to India. You'll never get it all. You can never take it all in. There will always be more, and you'll always want more. It's a continent. That was the advice. It's a good phrase, but it might not be sufficient. That suggests to me that we can visit it or not. Ignore it altogether if we prefer but I'm not so sure. It's so deep and fundamental to who we are, even those of us in the West, even those of us who have never been there. India might be more than a continent. India is a universe. That's it for this bonus episode of the History of Literature. Just a little something to whet your appetite. I know I'm hungry. Next time we'll continue our journey and take a look at some Indian literature in more depth. In the meantime, why not treat yourself to some Indian food? Or better yet, cook some yourself. Begin your own creative journey into the world of unlocking spices and herbs and learning how they all work together to create a beautiful, 
Cosmic Feast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.